0: in your pew Bible, if you're using that, or to Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 7. We're going to focus on 4, 5, and 6. It does say in the title it includes Noah, but we won't get to Noah. We're just going to talk about Abel, Enoch, and then this glorious statement in verse 6 about faith. Verse 1, now faith is the assurance, or as we saw, the substance of things hoped for, the reality of things hoped for, the conviction or proof of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found Because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Thus, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O oh Lord, grow our faith, enlarge our faith, renew our faith, hone our faith. Make it what it needs to be more and more, a faith by which our lives are transformed, our church is transformed, by which we Do great works in the name of Jesus, the works that Jesus called us to in Matthew 5, by which others might glorify our Father who is in heaven. O Lord, may we be people of helpless dependence and great expectancy as we trust you. We ask this for the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, kiddos. Four words this morning. The first one is snuff. I'm not talking about that little bit of tobacco which my great uncle and his sister, my grandmother, put between their cheek and lip every night when I was staying with them. A different kind of snuff. Then favorites, then tree, and fish. Okay? Snuff, favorites, tree, and fish. I'm going to start off with an illustration I used one Sunday night here, but not a lot of people are here on Sunday night. So I thought I could use it again. And those of you who heard it, just endure it. So I was speaking at a church near Yazoo City, and we were staying with friends in Yazoo City. And we were driving on a country highway uh, in the Delta. And as we were going... I happened to spot, like, there was three kittens on the side of the road that somebody had left. So I, I grew up with cats and dogs, and I just couldn't leave these little kittens to die. So I pull off. I go over to, I get two really quickly. We happen to have a box in the car. Uh, the third one, though, was, uh, was growling at me. And, but, I mean, I've held kittens and cats my whole life, and I know how to immobilize a cat. You just grab them by the scruff of the neck and pull them up, and they're just, you know, sit like that. Right, kids? You ever done that? And they're just there. Well, so I have him by the scruff of his neck. He's still growling, and suddenly he somehow turned around and ripped my hand to pieces. There was a pond nearby, so I took him and just threw him. Reel, reel, reel. No, I didn't do that. But uh, he fell to the ground and ran into these briars and I just couldn't get him, you know? There was no way. I just couldn't get him. But uh, it's always been an illustration to me of how we are with God. I was there to save the cat's life. And there was a warm bed and, and, and food and stroking and, I mean, his whole life, you know, just laid out, the whole thing. But what he, he said, no, I don't want it. Why did he not want it? Because he thought I was out to get him. He thought I was out to hurt him. He didn't want to entrust himself into my care. He was blind to my love he refused my offer of myself <laughs> to him, right? Let's see so this, this passage is about faith this whole chapter is about faith and we're going to see that essential element of, of, of faith is believing in the goodness of God, which we not only find difficult, it's impossible by nature. As crazy as it seems because God is infinite in love and has revealed his love in Jesus Christ, it's impossible for us, if left to ourselves, to entrust ourselves to this God who wants to do us good, not only through our lives, but forever. But first, before we get to that, we're going to talk some about Abel and Enoch. So the first thing we come to is by faith we worship, and we look at Abel here. Abel kept sheep, so he offered sheep, and Cain grew crops, so he offered crops. If you read the passage in Genesis 4... The difference in how their offerings were accepted has nothing to do with what they offered, but in how they offered it. The text is clear. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. His was an offering that expressed his faith. Cain's offering was a faithless offering. This means that in giving up the lamb, Abel was giving himself into God's care and giving himself up to God's will. He saw himself as belonging to God and protected by God. He was convinced of his own sinfulness. He looked to God for forgiveness. He trusted God's goodness. He took joy in God. He admired God. By faith, he worshiped. Cain did not he didn't entrust himself into God's care he didn't depend upon God his was a sacrifice of pride not praise it was a sacrifice of hubris hubris not humility of boasting not brokenness Cain was all about Himself, And we may think his jealousy and hatred, which you can read about in Genesis 4, arose because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not his. But jealousy and hatred had obviously been festering in his heart long before this day. This offering just kicked the anthill and the fire ants already inside came pouring out it revealed his heart. And notice when God says a person is righteous as this passage, that he was commended as righteous, first and foremost, it means that person lives by faith. That person trusts God and is amazed at God. That is the heart of being righteous, this trust also makes a person gracious and humble and kind to others. So we can ask, do you come to worship full of yourself or helplessly, desperately dependent upon God? Do you depend on Christ to enable you to worship to sing from the heart, to confess from the heart, to to hear and love and live out his word? Do you come dependent upon God that you might worship him? Do you judge others in worship or are you in awe that God forgives you? Are you picking others apart, maybe even down to what they're wearing? (laughs) Or in Paul's words, Are you humbly counting others as more important than yourself? Are you judging the hymn or song selections rather than trusting God and entering fully into the worship provided? Do you come seeking to love others, including reaching out to visitors? Do you come asking God to use you as an instrument of kindness and encouragement for others? It is by faith that we must worship, even as Abel did. He in his context, we in ours. And that faith will express itself in our love to one another. Secondly, by faith, we are delivered from death. As we move to Enoch, though, who was delivered from death, we still need to think about Abel a little bit, but it is all about death here. Because it says, the last phrase in verse 4, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Our author means that in spite of Abel's tragic death, his example of faith continues to speak to us, God's people. It lives past his own death to encourage us and challenge us. His faith still changes lives. And ours does the same even after we die. Matthew Poole, a Puritan, wrote this about this passage. By his faith, though murdered out of this world, and his place knows him no more, and... In spite of the fact it was done by Cain with a design that Abel should never speak or be spoken of anymore. That was the design. Yet he now speaks. You can snuff out a person like a candle, but you can't snuff out their faith. But Abel and Enoch, in an interesting way, and and here's a little exploration of the, Beauty of the literature of this writer, the writer of of Hebrews, because he was an absolute brilliant uh, man of Greek and and in his arrangements, they're so beautiful. These form a unit because both of them talk about death. Uh, Abel succumbing to death and then Enoch being delivered from death. Also, this chapter begins and ends with God commending those who have faith, right? That's what the whole of it is about. God's commending these people because of faith. Well, the only two people actually mentioned who are commended are Abel and Enoch, as we just read. So they're representatives to, of the whole of the chapter. All of these people were commended like Abel and Enoch. But, so they form this unit, but there's a little more Uh, at the head of the chapter, they they represent suffering and deliverance. Or you might say suffering and triumph. Some, like Abel, are not delivered in this life from suffering at all. Others, like Enoch, deliverance is the dominant note. But for most of us, like Abraham and and Moses to follow, it's a mixture, right, of suffering and deliverance. But this is how important this theme is to our author. He begins, he commends, uh, commending the faithful, suffering, deliverance. And then when you get to verse 32, he comes back with a mirror image and gives multiple deliverances like Enoch, multiple sufferings like Abel, And then ends again where he started, these were commended. By saying this and putting it this way and underscoring it, beginning and end, there's suffering, there's deliverance, suffering, deliverance. He's saying that God is pleased when in every aspect of life, from the worst to the best, we live by faith. It shows that in everything we face, Everything we do, everything that happens to us, each of these things is just one more opportunity to trust him. One more opportunity, one more a permutation of our putting ourselves into God's hands. All of life is the opportunity to bring glory to his name by constantly trusting him by constantly showing how trustworthy he is, worthy of our trust. It brought to my mind Paul's words in Romans 14, where he writes, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord, so that whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We live by faith. Now, Enoch is found in the first genealogy of the Bible in Genesis chapter 5. And in that genealogy, go from Adam all the way to Noah. And the refrain is like this. Adam fathered Seth and then he fathered other sons and daughters and, and then he died. Seth fathered, Enosh, then he fathered other sons and daughters, and he died. So six times it ends he died, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died. Then you get to Enoch, and right where you would normally say he died, you have this statement Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch walked with God, And he was not, because God took him. And our author here makes it clear that Enoch did not experience death, but was immediately brought into the presence of God. And many people ask, well, what about his body? Did he get there with his body or not with his body? You know, I have my opinion, but Scripture is silent unlike uh, the late Mike Leach, one of our favorite quotes from him, you know, former Mississippi State uh, coach. He's, you know, pretty wild, wrote about pirates and all this stuff. And he's asked this question one time and uh, the guy asked him, I can't remember what he was talking about, but he said, asked the question, he said, well, I don't know anything about that, but this is what I think. <laughs> so I don't know anything about his body, but I have an opinion, but I won't share it. <clears throat> Abel is the picture for us believers of unrelenting suffering that ends in death. And we need to know that having a worse temporal life than many others who are in Christ is not because we got the short end of the stick of God's love. It's not that God is having favorites, right? One believer has a prolonged, unremitting suffering And sometimes many bouts of suffering and disease. Many times unrelated and you just can't get a hold of why One dies relatively young, another lives long and enjoys many deliverances from death. God's unlimited love and care for each one of uh, of us manifests itself in every kind of way as to how our physical lives go. But it's all the same love, the eternal love that came and laid down his life for us, right? And here Enoch is no more commended than Abel. And this means that Abel is no less loved than Enoch. In fact, it's Abel, not Enoch, of whom he says he still speaks. And Abel anticipates the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, which comes in chapter 12 when we read that Christ endured the cross. But our author puts Enoch right besides Abel, not only because of the chronology, but because Enoch anticipates Christ's resurrection and triumph over death. Also, in early in chapter 12, where it says he is seated at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the throne of God. In fact, when you think about it, for the rest of this chapter, even those who experience great deliverance eventually all physically die. All of them are dying, just some earlier and more violently than others. But here at the head of the list, we have the picture of God's triumph even over death, as a kind of umbrella over the whole and an anticipation of Christ's resurrection and our own resurrection, so that with Enoch and us, death itself is overcome by faith. How glorious. It is God that gives us that victory But it is had because he gives us faith to expect it. So in the first two examples, we're encouraged to hold fast in suffering and death because death is not the final word. Then our writer, part three, by faith we please God, our writer plays off Enoch to give us in verse six a key passage for this whole chapter a controlling passage, really. He ends verse 5 by saying that Enoch was commended as having pleased God. That's from the old Greek translation of Genesis. The Hebrew says Enoch walked with God, as I read earlier. It's the same thing said in two different ways. He walked with God, he pleased God. But the author's making sure we understand in this verse, it was Enoch's faith that pleased God. And then he immediately broadens it out in verse six to say, almost as to say, in fact, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And of course, as he's framed this chapter with commended beginning and end, he's basically saying, all of these people, because of their faith, pleased God. You can only please God by trusting Him. You can only please God by trusting Him. Now, I have a a little correction. Not many times this happens, but just so you get a little bit closer to the original, it reads that He rewards those that seek Him, but that word is not a verb, it's a noun in the original so i like the translation he is a rewarder of those who seek him it's not about what he does it's about who he is he is the rewarder and It doesn't mean that you believe he exists and then separately you also, on top of that, believe he's a rewarder. You take them together because the only God that exists is the rewarding God. There is no other God. You must believe in the true, rewarding God. You must believe that he is the good God that he is, the gracious and merciful God, the promise-keeping God, the God ready and eager to hear you, the God who has a glorious future for all those who call on him. And this is hard, but he's saying you've got to trust that he is good. That's what it means to be a rewarder. You've got to trust that he is good. Just for example, we, hear, we read this in Ephesians 2, that in the coming ages, God will show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Okay, He's going to show these unlimited riches of his grace. How is he going to show it? By... Kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He'll magnify, show off his unlimited grace by being only, constantly, forever kind to us. We will always enjoy abounding, steadfast love of God forever and ever. He's the rewarder. We please him when we believe in his grace. We please him when we believe in his promise to forgive us all our sins through Christ. We please him when we expect him by grace to do us good all our days. We please him when we believe all things will always work for our good. We please him when we believe he is good and trustworthy. The first temptation with Eve in the garden was to question the goodness of God and therefore the word of God. Satan said, basically, God has said not to eat of that tree even though he knows it would be good for you to eat of that tree. You can't trust him. You can't put your happiness and future in his hands. Abandon this project. And all of our sin in some way or another is because of unbelief. If we were always fully convinced of his goodness, his goodwill to us in all of his commands, we would always fully give ourselves up to his will. Why would we not? We're not fully convinced still that he's the rewarding God, but by his grace, we're growing in that. We're growing closer and closer in that. Growing in our faith means growing in our conviction that he's gracious and kind and forgiving, that he's the rewarding God, that he truly is, not our made up idol who doesn't care about us, who neglects us and ignores us and refuses us when we cry out to him, quit making your idols. Darwin, quit making your idols. They're not the true God. And the way this passage reads, we have to understand it's not what we get from him that is our reward. He is our reward. Those who draw near to God, to have him. Those who seek him, not what they can get from him. They seek him and their reward is they get to have him forever. So the psalmist says in Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Psalm 36, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the rivers of your delights for with you is the fountain of life in your light Do we see light? He sounds drunk on God's love. (laughs) It's just like, what's another metaphor? What's another way I can say of how glorious it is to know you and one day be with you forever? That's, That's what we really seek, is God himself. As one Puritan wrote, if heaven were without Christ, heaven would be a veil of tears. That examines you somewhat, doesn't it? Why do I long for heaven? What is my ultimate goal? What do I want heaven to be? It's ironic. (laughs) Like Eve and, and, of course, Adam followed, we make God out to be some kind of bad, sad, mad concoction so we can excuse ourselves from having to give up our lives to him, right? We don't trust in his goodness, and we don't want to believe in his goodness. We maintain our independence by declaring that he's unworthy of our attention, unworthy of our allegiance and love. That way we can stay in charge of our lives. We can call our own shots. Who knows what God would do to me if he got my life in his hands? Those are our doubts. That's that's our private blasphemies, our unbelief. Because if he is good, it demands everything, everything from us. Not, Not in the end, unwillingly, but running to him, running to this treasure we've found. And our seeking God is centered in seeking Christ. He is the image of God. He is the one who reveals God to us. He reveals that the true God is the God who came to earth, took upon himself flesh so he could die in our place and bear our punishment and judgment so that we can be forgiven and be forever accepted in him so that we could be his children, so that we could receive the kingdom and inheritance that only belongs to Christ, but he shares it gladly with any who will trust in him. So, Paul can say in Philippians 1, for me to live as Christ. And in Philippians 3, he says basically, I'll lose anything and everything to know and have the Lord Jesus Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 5, he says the love of Christ controls us. We live for him because we're so loved by him. And we believe it. We really believe. As John describes conversion in 1 John 4, we've come to know and believe the love God has for us. Verse 16. That's the essence of conversion. Of truly coming to Christ. I've come to know and believe the love that God has for me in Christ Jesus. He offers himself. We were made for God. We were made for him. You know, imagine... You're in a, you come up uh, and, and also imagine fish can talk for this illustration to work, okay? Uh, so you come up out of this water and you see all these fish flopping on the side of the bank, right? And you're appealing to them, hey guys, you need to flop on in to here. This is where you belong. No, we're doing fine. We're doing fine out here on the bank. We're good. And you're like, no, no, you, you've got fins that, that's made for the water. You, you've got a, your body shape that's made for the water. You've got gills It's made for the water. It's not made for where you are. You got that oily stuff that helps you slide through the water. <laughs> this is what you're made for. And you see, if you could see your soul's construction, its contours, you would see This is made for God. I'm made for God. And outside of that relationship, relatively speaking, I'm a fish flopping on the side of the bank, slowly dying. And yet, when Christ comes to us, by nature, we will refuse him. We, though, in the end, can't even make the excuse, I'm too hard-hearted to believe. I just can't have that faith because faith is a part of the whole rescue. That's really good news. It was really good news for me to hear. None of us would believe in Christ if God hadn't given us that gift. Nobody here would believe in Christ apart from the grace of God. As Jesus himself said in John 6, 44, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And that just means no one will trust in me unless the Father gives him that faith. So you could at least start there this morning. Oh Lord, oh Lord in your grace, give me the faith to know your goodness, to believe in your goodness, and to entrust myself to your goodness, and to count on that goodness all my days. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, what a beautiful, amazing life to live trusting this God of unlimited goodness. And yet we struggle to believe it. Thank you that you will not let us go. Thank you that you are patient with us in our failures, in our remaining unbelief, though belief is the the bulk of what we are by your grace. Oh, Lord... Continually change us. We know that if we're going to conform more and more to Jesus Christ, we will grow in faith. For He was the one who perfectly entrusted Himself, even on the cross, to His Father. Oh Lord, thank you that this is Your work in our lives. And Lord, we would seek even to trust and expect from You this goodness that you will ever grow us in faith.